You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 27th of November 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello there, I'm Emma Nelson, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. It's good to have your company. Coming up in the next half hour, the papers with Simon Brook, the journalist and communications consultant. And we'll hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, who talks about the importance of getting together at Christmas and how we can all play our part. I understand why even in our increasingly vaccinated world, some people remain wary of the party. That's fine, but let's not pretend that something isn't lost when the Christmas shindig is cancelled. And Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Mulland rounds up what we learned this week. We learned this week that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, in researching his deeply odd 2014 book The Churchill Factor, may have under-concentrated on the sections dealing with the importance of rousing and inspirational oratory. That's all coming up on Monocle on Saturday, right here on Monocle 24. The World Health Organization has declared a new strain of coronavirus as of concern. The new variant, named Omicron, has a large number of mutations and early evidence suggests an increased reinfection risk. A number of countries have now decided to ban or restrict travel to and from southern Africa. Meanwhile, further restrictions are being introduced in the Netherlands to combat the spread of COVID-19. Many bars, restaurants and shops are to close in an attempt to stop the country's healthcare system from being overwhelmed. The surge in the Netherlands, the worst in Western Europe, came even though 85% of the adult population has been vaccinated. The US has said all options are on the table in how to respond to a large build-up of Russian troops on the border with Ukraine. The State Department's top US diplomat for European affairs, Karen Donfried, said Moscow's large and unusual troop build-up will top the agenda at the NATO summit next week. And Stephen Sondheim, the composer and lyricist behind some of the world's best-known musicals, has died aged 91. Just some of his best-known works from a 60-year career which changed musicals include the lyrics for West Side Story and Sweeney Todd. I'm Emma Nelson and that's your news on Monocle 24. And a very warm welcome to Monocle on Saturday. It's Emma Nelson uh, sitting behind the microphone today. And I'm delighted to say that we're going to go through the papers now uh, with Simon Brook, journalist and communications consultant. A very good morning to you, Simon. Good morning, Emma. I think it must be said that we need a little bit of a context today because, yes, this is Saturday, but this is no ordinary Saturday in, in, in the Monocle calendar. This is the annual Monocle Christmas market, which... I'm afraid to say you were unaware of until you walked in. Wow. What, what were you greeted with when I you came in? I was greeted with a wonderful smell of cinnamon buns and some really elegant crockery and people unpacking all kinds of amazing stuff, I have to say. So, uh, yeah, credit card at the ready. Absolutely. It's going to have steam coming off it <laughs> later <laughs> well, on this afternoon. Yeah. It's a glorious time. If you are um, in the neighbourhood, I mean, please don't, you know, travel thousands of miles to do it. Or, well, yeah, why not? Come to, it's, We're open tomorrow. Um, come and have a look because it's it has all the things that the monocle Christmas market has every single year. For starters, we have live reindeer, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we will have a little store where Monocle 24 will be broadcasting from, and we have Santa Claus, the same one, the one. The real the man- 
Well, yes, obviously, Simon. We don't authentic. We yeah. never do anything that's pretend here at Monocle. Let's be absolutely <laughs> clear about this. Everything is echt, echt, echt. Um, but he's come all the way from Rovaniemi. So he is from in Finland. That's very and good of him. Brought his live reindeer as well. He's brought the lot. He's brought the lot. And he's a hardworking man, I can tell you. Right. So just that massive sort of announcement out of the way. Let's have a look at what's in the papers. What's caught your eye? Uh, yes, uh, interesting story here. Another um, hardworking man is Olaf Scholz, of course, who's the new uh, German Chancellor, who's finally put together the coalition. And the, the FT, Financial Times, taking a slightly different angle on this story with a report that, uh, as, as the headline puts it, um, from cannabis to refugees, Scholz plans to leave progressive mark on Germany. Uh, and the story is that the incoming government has been praised already for its stance on LGBTQ+, LGBTQ+ rights and also uh, easing immigrants into jobs. Um, the paper quotes uh, Greta Garlix, who's a spokeswoman for Queer Grün, the Greens LGBT Q plus lobby group. My heart is racing, she says. So many queer people are writing to me to say how relieved and happy they are. Um, so cannabis will be legalised, the voting age lowered to 16 and mass video surveillance in German cities will be banned, according to the FT. Um, so uh, and very significantly, I think uh, this is probably the most significant part of this package is the fact that uh, immigrants will be welcomed very much uh, with open arms. Um, obviously, that's particularly interesting in Germany, given that uh, the, the, the Angela Merkel, his predecessor's decision to open the gates to migrants in 2015 caused such enormous ructions. But it does seem that perhaps public attitudes and the political uh, mood, if you like, has changed. It was arguably the one thing that absolutely not necessarily poisoned her legacy because obviously she has a legacy which will surpass that kind of thing in so many ways. But it was the one thing that everybody talked about, the fact that she took a unilateral decision herself to make sure that the doors were, you know, Verschaffen das, we'll, we'll take them on. Um, we'll take it on. But the, the, she was the one who made the decision ultimately to let migrants into into Germany and to open the borders. and it And it really did cause a huge problem. What surprised me by this article in the Financial Times, and um, I think it's the fact that it talks about being the most socially progressive government in more than a generation, was that Olaf Scholz was elected, or was sort of nominated as Chancellor for the SPD, simply because he was a steady pair of hands. You know, he had worked with Merkel. He was not seen as anybody who would upset the apple cart and who would, who would mess things around. But actually, we have these enormous steps being made, um, brave steps, as soon as they, they, they've signed the coalition agreement. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know he's, as you say, very much seen as a as a safe pair of hands, a continuation of the the Merkel legacy. But he's clearly determined to put his own uh, imprint, if you like, on the country, um, and to distinguish himself, differentiate himself um, from his predecessor. Um, you know, there's the sort of questions about whether, um, to some extent, this this deal, the, this these proposals, if you like, were the upshot of, of involving uh, the Greens uh, in the alliance uh, that uh, that has been put, the coalition that's just recently been put together. But as I say, when I was in Germany a few weeks ago talking to a 
uh, taxi driver about uh, the, as you know, always a, a sort of font of They're wisdom. They're the bellwether, aren't they? they? they the, well, they really are. This is why I wanted to know what he said. And he said, well, you know, this was before the coalition was announced, well before it was announced, when the negotiations were still ongoing. Uh, he said, well, whatever happens, this will not be good for business, he said. Uh, well, certainly his business anyway. But as I say, given that, uh, according to the Financial Times, uh, business groups are welcoming this move, especially... Um, you know, the, the opportunity to uh, increase the labour force with skilled migrants. It does seem then perhaps that there's quite a broad uh, opportunity here, quite a, uh, an opportunity for the Schultz government to appeal to all kinds of different groups. Indeed. I mean, it seems to be the one thing that unites everybody, actually, because the Liberals will want you know, the economy to push ahead as much as possible. The Greens will have uh, you know, a much more open um, a, a view and obviously when you have the, the SPD who's centre-left but the FT makes a very important part that that, that business is in, into this our population is ageing says says um, uh, it, it, it says one of the business um, representatives from the SPD um, 400,000 immigrants every year understands that Germany is a country of immigration that's a huge statement to make especially when you place it in the context of what is happening elsewhere in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Germany is is not the only country with an ageing population. And, uh, you know, they've taken, according to the the, the Financial Times, the, the Schultz administration will take uh, introduce some very practical steps. Immigrants with no criminal record who've lived in the country for five years will be entitled to a one-year residence permit. People seeking naturalisation in Germany uh, will no longer be forced to renounce their other citizenships. And an interesting quote here in the Financial Times from the uh, Süddeutsche Zeitung writing yesterday... The truth is, says the paper, uh, there's a political majority in this country in favour of these things and everyone will just have to live with it. So um, I think there's, I think it's interesting to see we've sort of seen the, the AFD, the, uh, the, the German far right sort of fall back. Um, and it does seem to be that Adolf Schultz is making the political weather here. There needs to be, there needs to be a sort of a, a tempered um, sort of step here because... What generally happens, I mean, we only need to see what happened in the United States with Barack Obama making so many changes and so many societal shifts. And guess what happened straight after that? We got Trump. It's that equal and opposite reaction issue, isn't it? And one wonders whether the alternative of your Deutschland will capitalise on all this and will gather strength in a way that perhaps it, it hasn't done in the last few years. And also... You can't forget that actually there are huge swathes of Germany which are incredibly traditional. Mm. And you get the concept of, you know, especially in, let's say, Bavaria, where you have highly Catholic populations, you have villages, you have real tradition. And I wonder just how much pushback there is going to be about this. I mean, it feels like a breath of fresh air when you read the article, but you think actually there's going, there's going to be pushback somewhere. Yeah, certainly. I mean, a lot of uh, people suggesting, as you say, that uh, the, the the regional differences in Germany will have some impact. Um, but then also, actually, just looking at the other media, if you type AFG, uh, sorry, AFD, the uh, the German uh, far right, into Google and hit news, you do see that they're you know they do seem to be struggling. Certainly, I think also it's interesting the, the FT pointing out as well that all kinds of other changes and things like uh, women's right to choose. Um, uh, for instance, on pro pro choice campaigners are very happy, heartened by the decision to abolish uh, Article 219A of the German Penal Code, which prohibits abortion doctors from advertising their services. So uh, it's interesting here that that actually this is really very much a sort of broad, permissive, progressive. 
um, menu of of, um, of suggestions and options that uh, that the new Schultz government is is introducing. So, but as you say, so whether it's not just immigration, but all kinds of issues from LGBT rights to abortion, all these things, uh, legalization of cannabis, it will be interesting to see if in certain. Uh, regions of the country, there is some pushback, some reaction to it. Simon, thank you so much for staying with us. Simon, you'll be with us for the rest of the programme today. First, though, before we have a bit more from Simon and uh, a little bit from Andrew Tuck, our editor-in-chief, let's hear from our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, for his weekly recap of the things that perhaps we didn't know this time last week. We learned this week that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, in researching his deeply odd 2014 book The Churchill Factor, a hapless effort by Johnson to stick his own head through his illustrious predecessor's portrait, may have underconcentrated on the sections dealing with the importance of rousing and inspirational oratory. Johnson spoke to a bemused, possibly downright terrified, Confederation of British Industry. Uh, Tony, yesterday I went, uh, as, as we all must, uh, uh, to, to Pepper Pig World. I don't know if you've been to Pepper Pig World. Who's been to Pans? I've been to, who's been to Pepper Pig World. Not enough. I was, well, it's, it's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Pepper Pig World, uh, but I loved it. And Pepper Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. Uh, it, 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 it has uh, a... Uh... We learned, therefore, of a parallel history of the United Kingdom in which circa 1940 its Prime Minister had distractedly promised its people mud, uh, soil, spheres and... Fantastic uh, broadband. Uh... uh... Forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Before wibbling interminably about a visit to some sort of Winnie the Pooh-themed tourist attraction, with the likely result that these weekly What We Learned monologues would instead be entitled Was wir gelernt haben. Elsewhere on the sunlit uplands beat, we learned more about how post-Brexit Britain's endeavours to lure the world's best and brightest are proceeding. Six months ago, amid some ballyhoo, the UK's government launched a new visa scheme intended to attract Nobel laureates and other trophy-clutching boffins. Six months later, the total number of applications made under this scheme does not require gong-winning comprehension of mathematics to count, for it is, we learned, zero. We learned, indeed, that a visa scheme intended to attract expert players of the sad trombone glissando might be a better idea. Lord knows there is plenty of work here for them. Righto, don't rub it in. We learned, however, that whatever indignities or absurdities might be furnished by British politics, even post-Trump, and perchance pre-Trump, the Americans can still be relied upon to excel them. Yes, we learned that Big Bird and other habitues of Sesame Street had been banished by that very sector of American conservatism usually most volubly anguished by what they fear as cancel culture. 
almost as if their shrieking defences of free speech are in fact bad faith melodramatics intended to amplify the idiotic paranoid fantasies of their core constituency of angry yokels, can I get some general muttered agreement? Yeah. We learned after emitting a deep sigh... After emitting a deep sigh... <sighs> Come on, keep up. We learned that Big Bird's crime was to issue from Big Bird's official Twitter account the following, as read by Monocle's Sesame Street desk chief, Marcus Hippie. I got the COVID-19 vaccine today. My wing is feeling a little sore, but it'll give my body an extra protective boost that keeps me and others healthy. From which we learned, frankly, that Big Bird has been lamentably slow on the uptake here. Aged 52, the immense feathered yellow flightless fowl of indeterminate species would have been long eligible, but better late than never. We also learned, however, that this had caused uproar. Come on, let's have some uproar. <laughs> in certain Republican circles, specifically amongst the organisers of the next Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, scheduled to occur in Florida, the and finally state, in February. CPAC declared that Big Bird would be unwelcome at their annual clown rodeo, so there, ditto Big Bird's Sesame Street neighbours, Bert, Ernie and Elmo. Obviously fair enough where Elmo is concerned, as he's just incredibly irritating, but we learned that certain of CPAC's circle were especially infuriated, or, which may be worse, absolutely willing to allow others to believe that they were incandescent with rage at the public health initiatives of a bird costume. Texan Republican senator and humanoid theatre tragedy mask Ted Cruz decried Big Bird's intervention as government propaganda. Arizona Republican state senator and massive weirdo Wendy Rogers called Big Bird a communist and Trumpist evangelist Mario Murillo became notably excited. This is the most demonic thing I've seen in a long time. Uh, the indoctrination of children. So we learned that at least one church now regards the indoctrination of children as demonic, which is progress. Thank you. Whimsical, yet edgy. And we learned what we would very much like for Christmas. One Brampton grandmother says she got quite a shock when a dancing cactus she bought sang a song with swear words and drug use. Yes, we learned that a Polish-Canadian grandmother who purchased an educational toy for her shortly-to-be disappointed grandchildren discerned that the Polish component of the item's multilingual burblings, lifted without permission, it seems, from the works of Polish rapper Sippus, who you can hear in the background, was perhaps originally composed with a more mature audience in mind, as she explained to CTV News. It's about taking five grams of cocaine and being alone. Um, something about he doesn't care, he lost the house already, there's nothing to live for. Has a single one of the so-called Christmas carols so accurately captured the true spirit of the holiday season? For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Andrew Muller there with what we learned. Uh, you're listening to Monocle 24, to Monocle on Saturday. I'm joined in the studio by Simon Brook. I'm assuming that we've all, we're all putting the swearing, dancing cactus on our Christmas list. Oh, gosh, yeah, get me, get me one now, yeah. <laughs>
Absolutely made my day there. Thank you to Andrew and indeed to Chrissy Evans who pulls that together every single week. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday with me, Emma Nelson, and joining me in the studio is Simon Brooke. We have to reassess the papers and have a quick look. I mean, Andrew a moment ago was mentioning this spectacular speech given by Boris Johnson earlier on this week to the Confederation of British Industry where he burbled and he bumbled and he couldn't find his papers and etc etc and then mentioned Pepper Pig World as a former Conservative Party communications expert how what was your stomach doing when you were listening oh, yeah, to how, how would you spin this one I have to say it, it, it would I don't I don't uh envy my successes at all or, or sort of the Downing Street uh, media team. It, it's really difficult. I'm told that Boris has, well, I think we all know, Boris has a habit of winging it. Um, you know, he was notoriously always late to deliver his his copy, his articles when he was a columnist for the Daily Telegraph. And I think this is a prime example of how I, I would say he doesn't understand the difference between writing a thousand word uh, provocative think piece for a newspaper and delivering a serious policy. Boris Johnson has uh, has a problem with business. Um, you know, traditionally the Conservative Party has always been the party of business, hasn't it, in the UK, uh, like the Republican uh, Republicans in the US or something. But uh, part of the, 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 the love affair broke down when Boris Johnson uh, led the, um, the Brexit campaign, and uh, I'm not going to use the word, but it begins with F, business, uh, which, you know, was very controversial or whatever. And certainly the CBI and other business organisations Organisations have been listening carefully to what Boris Johnson says, hoping that that he will be on their side. And uh, uh, I think certainly his speech on Monday, which, as you say, was um, you know described by by in the media uh, quotes as shambolic a mess and the most embarrassing by a Conservative Prime Minister, really made it clear that he doesn't take business seriously and I think a growing number of people might say he doesn't take the job of being Prime Minister seriously either. No, it's a, it's a really difficult uh, balance to strike. I think it's been, I think one of his critics a few years ago said Boris is a brilliant journalist. He can, he can, he's an excellent person to write a provocative idea but there is a huge difference between being a journalist and being able to run a country, as you and I, can you imagine if you and I try to run a country? We yeah, would have exactly. A go. I, can, I can write a thousand words on almost anything you ask. <laughs> absolutely, but running the country, I think, it's, as you say, it's a slightly different. Not business. quite there yet. And I, I was out of I was out of the United Kingdom this week. I was in Zurich for Monocle Twenty Four, and you get a different sense of perspective when you are in and out of the country. That that from the inside, Boris Johnson is chaotic, fun, but amenable and quite charming in certain ways. He mm. still cuts it through for the voters. It's astonishing how popular he is. Um, but when you step out and you start reading articles in the Targus Anzeiger saying, is this man all right? Questions being asked. And then you see, you know, we're in, we're in a situ- serious situation at the moment with Austria going into lockdown, with Switzerland looking at a COVID referendum tomorrow. And then you look at what Emmanuel Macron is saying in France about the way that the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, behaves, him- behaves themselves when it comes to the migrant crisis. And you look at a totally different approach to running the world. And it is a serious one from outside the, the, the UK. And you look back and you wonder what is happening in the UK and the fact that its stock has really fallen in the eyes of the rest of the world. Well, in, cer- in certain areas of the world, at least. I think, yeah, the, the international dimension is really interesting. Um, 
There's a, a, a long analysis in the Daily Telegraph of the relationships between the UK and France by Ben Riley-Smith, the paper's political editor. Interesting analogy, you know, looking at the fact that uh, when Macron uh, came to visit the UK back in, I think, 2018, he offered as a gesture of goodwill to lend uh, Britain the Bayer tapestry, you know, the, the Norman uh, tapestry, which describes the war between uh, the, the two countries a thousand years ago, whatever, Apparently, he can't now do that because the thing is falling apart, which perhaps can be compared also to... <laughs> rather symbolic, Frank, rather. Absolutely, Anglo-French relations, exactly. But, yeah, I think I think what's interesting is, you know, we had this comment from Boris Johnson uh, in his latest spat with Emmanuel Macron. Prenez un grip, donnez-moi un break, said the Prime Minister. Uh, and then just yesterday, uh, announced, uh, giving announcements via uh, Twitter, publishing letters to the French president via Twitter and uh, a comment by Emmanuel Macron on a press conference yesterday. I spoke two days ago with the Prime Minister Johnson in a serious way. For my part, I continue to do that, as I do with all countries and all leaders. I'm surprised by the methods when they are not serious. So I think certainly um, there's a sort of feeling uh, amongst uh, Europe, other European leaders that Boris Johnson isn't a a serious politician. On the other hand, he's a very successful one. You know, he led uh, he led his party to a massive uh, um, majority uh, just in, t- in 2019, sort of just, just coming up to two years ago. So I think the point about Boris Johnson, and I think this is the predicament that many of his MPs face, is that he is very good at campaigning he can do the boosterism <clears throat> excuse me he can do the he can you know the, the 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 poetry of campaigning he's just not very good at the prose of government uh, and i think the question is how many mps will who owe their seats in a way to boris johnson's ability to reach parts of the electorate that other politicians certainly not other conservative politicians can reach when will they say actually yes i'm grateful to him for helping me to win my seat especially in these uh, the, the red wall seats in the north but actually now he's become a liability so uh, i think it's time for him to go of course time is is ticking away because if there is going to be a leadership election um then that new conservative party leader would have to be in plenty of, in place in plenty of time for the next election and it is a, i think it's safe to say that the conservatives live, live to be re-elected they they are uh, they yeah. they exist in a permanent state of campaign completely and uh, for better or for worse, and it, they are very, very, very good at it. Um, the issue that you then find, though, is if you are a Conservative, you know that Boris Johnson is still charming and still still has that 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 power uh, to to attract the electorate. But you need to find a replacement, and so far there doesn't seem to be one, does there? So they so the Conservatives might find themselves in a bit of a pickle. Could this be an opportunity for Labour and Keir Starmer to to seize ahead and get the initiative, because? I don't know about you, but Keir Starmer, although not the great superstar that everybody hoped he would be, one feels he's pushing back a little bit, cutting through a little more. Or is that just me being hopeful? No, I think, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think the problem for... uh, The the thing about politics and popularity is you can be as incompetent and unpopular as possible as as a government, but you just have to be a little bit less incompetent and a little bit less unpopular than the opposition, that's all. So the problem is, I mean, yes, you know, obviously with the latest... 
fiascos from the, the, the Conservative government. Um, Labour has inched ahead a few points in the polls. But we are midway through an, uh, the electoral cycle with a government which has made many, many mistakes. Labour really ought to be at least 10 points ahead here. And I think the problem is that uh, whatever Keir Starmer's qualities, and as you say, he comes across as a serious politician, he, he isn't a campaigner. He's not a, he's not a politician in the sense of doing politics, which is what Boris Johnson is. So I suppose in a way, they really are in the wrong jobs in some way. You really read a sort of serious details guy, person, like Keir Starmer as Prime Minister, and you need a sort of, uh, you, you know, an energetic uh, um, mood rather than details uh, politician like Boris Johnson to be leader of the opposition. But it isn't that way around. It isn't that way that round at all. Uh, and boy, are we feeling it here in the UK. <laughs> the time is now 9.27 here in London. Simon, you're going to stay with us right until the end. Uh, but first, let's have our weekly column from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Here he is talking about Christmas parties, their importance and how we all have a part to play. In the run-up to Christmas, Monocle hosts parties and receptions to say thank you to at least some of the people who have supported us across the year, from advertisers to photographers, correspondents to stylists. And on Thursday, we were in Paris for this very reason. What can I tell you? Life's tough some days. The couturier, Rabbi Carouz, loaned us his atelier that's housed in what used to be an experimental theatre. It's where Waiting for Godot was first performed. And Kamal Muzawak organised the food, Lebanese, of course, and generally set the chic tone, helped in no small part by his Afghan hound stretched out on an orange Florence Knoll sofa. Why am I telling you about all this when somehow you missed your invite? Look, it comes back to the debate about what's gained by coming together in the real world and what's lost if you try to pass off video calls and Google Hangouts as elegant replacements of real interactions. Just as there are people who believe that going to an office to see colleagues robs them of an extra hour in bed, so there are also those who see parties as frivolous and potentially litigious if Carl from accounts chugs too much eggnog again and says something lewd instead of sticking to the spreadsheet chattery. Well, despite of all these concerns, they are wrong. Here's what happened in Paris. Across the arc of the evening, I met a French journalist who ended up with a hefty commission and spoke with an American writer who agreed to make space in his schedule to write for Monocle too. On email, it had been far too easy for him to give me the slip in recent months. I also talked with photographers and stylists who I only know by name and heard stories about their lives and careers that brought them to life in ways that I will always remember. I updated friendships I've known Rabbi Carews for 15 years. I heard about Paris, discussed design, food, and the Bataclan trial that's gripping France. None of this would have happened if I was at home on a video call. Parties, hospitality, people gathered in a house or a restaurant has the power to be transformative, to edge the frazzled, the jaded into a shared mood to mark moments, to show appreciation without fuss, to make day-to-day -day frustrations evaporate. There was a moment when the DJ had hit his stride and conversations were eddying around the room that I sensed a collective spirit afoot. It was people enjoying the enduring power of a good party. 
Of course, I understand why even in our increasingly vaccinated world, some people remain wary of the party. That's fine, but let's not pretend that something isn't lost when the Christmas shindig is cancelled. Now, seeing as I feel bad about your Paris invite, how about this to cheer you up? This weekend, it's the Monocle Christmas Market at Midori House in London, and you are invited. All you have to do is rock up. It's free, well, until you start buying gorgeous things, and there will be reindeer and a guest appearance by Santa Claus. Come on, what's not to like? What's more, that other giver of cheer from the north, well, from Canada at least, Mr Tyler Brule, as well as myself, will be in attendance on both days. We'll even be signing books, monocle books that is, and only after you've paid for them, and generally spreading some good cheer. You'll easily spot me, as Tyler has asked if I wouldn't mind dressing up as an elf. He assures me that it's an honour, and while I find the green leggings a little tight in places, I have agreed. So, come on down. And come on down indeed. I shall be looking forward to seeing Andrew in that outfit. That was our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekly column. If you enjoyed that, why not sign up to get it uh, sent to your inbox every single week? It arrives on a Saturday morning and always brings good cheer. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. The time here in London is 9.32. I'm joined in the studio by Simon Brooks. Simon, you're going to stay with us till the end, aren't you? Yeah, But let's please. hear now uh, from Matt Wolfe, who's a London theatre critic for the New York Times. Um, Matt, the reason why we've got you on the line today is because of Stephen Sondheim, isn't it? He's died age 91. Um, The composer and lyricist behind some of the world's best known and arguably best musicals. Um, It it hit me last night when I realised that when I heard that he died, just how much actually I I love his music because and, and, and it hit you too, didn't it? It hit me very deeply. I mean, the thing uh, the thing about Stephen Sondheim is that he, he felt like one of these figures that would always be here, that he would in some way never go away. So to read of his death came as an absolute thunderclap, particularly because there's a revival uh, of his musical company and previews on Broadway at the moment. And there was just footage a couple of days ago of him in the audience uh, added at one of the previews, uh, you know, standing and cheering and, and looking actually very well. And a lot of people were looking at that going, oh, here he is, you know, match fit and isn't that great so whatever happened it was obviously very very quick and I guess if you have to go that's the way to go absolutely and at the age of 91 I think that's all we can hope for um mm. just looking at I think the, the one thing that really struck me is when I was looking back at the not just at his body as work of work but the way that people described it and let's use this as a bit of a springboard to see where to see to talk about Sondheim's work was when mm. um Barack Obama gave Sondheim the Presidential Medal of Freedom mm. his speech was wonderful. He said, mm. his greatest hits aren't tunes you hum, they're reflections on roads we didn't take, wishes gone wrong, relationships mm. so frayed and fractured, there's nothing left to do but send in the clowns. <laughs> he reinvented the American mm. musical. I mean, that is, reinventing the, the American musical is the, is the phrase that's being used to describe Sondheim today, isn't it? Why, why is that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, of course, that's true. And Obama, in, in that citation, used a lot of lyrics and, and titles from Sondheim's own work. Uh, the thing about Sondheim, uh, of course, is that he made the musical matter. I mean, I think for many people, uh, the musical is dismissed as some sort of 
frivolous, not really very important um, sidebar to proper theater. And that was often considered to be the case way back when, and some people probably still think that. That's not true of Sondheim at all. He kind of elevated uh, an art form with wit and style, a lot of fun, but a a real seriousness of purpose. Uh, He never repeated himself. Lots of composers, you know, will take a song that didn't work in one show and they'll put it in the next show. This happens uh, more than you might realize. All of Sondheim's shows were bespoke. They were tailored to their topics and their characters. And then uh, also on this topic, his subjects were so unlikely, but they all worked. Uh, A a demon barber of Fleet Street and a musical about cannibalism, Uh, you know, a revisionist story of fairy tales and into the woods, Uh, a pointless painter in Sun and Park with George. None of these seem logical for the musical theater, but somehow they all worked. Indeed. I mean, I was lucky enough to see a production of of Sweeney Todd a couple of years ago Mm. in a major opera house in Europe because Mm. and it would sit next to it would seem it would sit between Mozart and Puccini and Wagner and Sondheim was up there as well. And Simon, you you, in the the studio with me um, initially, I don't know about you, but I'm no no great fan of musicals. It's it's just unfortunate. (laughs) I'm not programmed to like them. But there's something about a Sondheim musical, isn't there, Simon, which is which is just it's something different. It is. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not a great fan at all. But I, I, I don't know what you think, Matt, but I, I would say that, that things like West Side Story, this is American opera, isn't it? Yeah. You yes. know? And, uh, yeah. and I think, as you were saying, Emma, you know, that wonderful quote from Barack Obama in the point about Sondheim is um, that, that his, his, the stories he chooses and he tells, that his lyrics, which, as I say, I, I realise how many I knew, even though I'm not a, a, a musical fan, they, really, they go beyond the immediate, don't they? It's about broader themes, more sort of mm-hmm. universal truths, and uh, and Matt and you, you you know your point about him are tackling tackling uh, issues that people wouldn't normally do. The, the New York Times pointing out that his his works include assassins giving voice to the men and women who killed or tried mm. to kill American presidents, mm. and passion mm. and operatic probe into the nature of true love. I mean, yeah. amazing those big themes he tackled. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there, there's a, a, a lyric from Sun and Park with George about teaching us how to see. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that Sondheim did. It, it's often said about him wrongly that he appealed uh, to the head and not the heart. And all I can say to that is that something must be the matter with your heart. If you can go to shows <laughs> like Follies and Little Night Music and Sun and Park mm. with George and Company and not emerge very deeply moved mm. and having also cracked a wry smile and been, you know, um, taken aback by the, the breathless intellect on view. But it's never, for me anyway, never in intellect for the sheer sake of intellect. It's always underformed by, to use the title of one of his shows, underformed by passion. Indeed. I mean, the, the longing that you get in, in West Side Story, you know, the likes of something like so- Somewhere, terribly mm. simple, but this mm. this feeling of hope, but terrible, terrible sense of loss. So, mm. I mean, we have this awful moment now where we have to create a legacy for C- Stephen Sondheim. We have to place him inside yeah. history. Where does he fit? Well, I had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Sondheim quite a few times, and I would ask him about legacy, and he always used to say he didn't care about legacy because by the time uh, people discuss your legacy, you're not around to know what it is, so it doesn't matter. You just need to do as well as you can while you're here. What I would say on that topic are two things. One is that he wrote an incredible array of stonking great parts, and they appeal to actors as well as singers, you know, actors who can sing, not just singers who might be able to act. So I think as long as people can act... Uh, his his output will be incredibly attractive. And I also like to think there's a wonderful line from Into the Woods from the song Giant in the Sky, and, and the lyric is, they die, but they don't. And I sort of feel with him that, you know, he, he may be dead, but the work is not. The work will be immortal. 
Matt Wolf, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Saturday. That's all we have time for today's edition. Many thanks to my guest, Simon Brook. Thank you, Simon, for coming in. Thank you so much to our studio engineer, Nora Hole, and our producer, Marcus Hippie. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Saturday returns next week. But for now, goodbye. Thank you for listening. And if you're in London, please come to the Monocle Christmas Market. It's brilliant fun and it's open in half an hour.